0: Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Everlasting God, whose tenacious love holds us, make our hearts the house of your truth, and make our minds the realm of your wisdom, so that our fellowship will become your dwelling place. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Old Testament scripture reading today is from Psalm 63. The first eight verses, and it's found on page 516 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied, as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The word of the Lord.
1: So, last week in the 13th chapter of Luke, we looked at uh, the moment when Jesus is thinking about Jerusalem and lamenting over Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And it ends, that section that we looked at last week, ends uh, a, se- a larger section of the Gospel of Luke that begins with the passage that we read this morning at the beginning of the 13th chapter. And the entire portion of that, Luke's, that part of Luke's Gospel focuses on one theme, and that is uh, penitence and repentance. So listen now to these words that open this section on penitent, penitence in Luke's gospel, the chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some, pre, some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, You can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So those of you who know the works of Flannery O'Connor, the southern author, may remember a short story that she wrote called Revelation. It centers around an older southern lady named Ruby Turpin, who has taken her husband Claude to the doctor. So as she and Claude are sitting in this little waiting room, Mrs. Turpin starts sizing everybody up. There was the slender, put-together lady in a stylish gray suit, and when they exchange annoyed glances over the runny-nosed little boy who is sprawling all over the place, Mrs. Turpin instantly determines that she must be good people. Across the room, however, a thin, leathery old woman with a tired, vacant look who wore tennis shoes and a dress with the same fabric pattern that was on Claude's chicken feed bags. She was quickly classified as white trash. A younger mother, that mother of the runny-nosed little boy who wore bedroom slippers and a yellow sweatshirt and her lips were stained with snuff tobacco, she was put on an even lower rung. And with remarkable efficiency, Ruby Turpin sized up everybody in that waiting room, something that she did pretty much everywhere she went. Sometimes, O'Connor wrote, and these are her words, Mrs. Turpin occupied herself at night naming the classes of people. On the bottom of the heap were most colored people, not the kind she would have been if she had been one, but most of them. Then next to them, not above, just away from, were the white trash, and then above them were homeowners, and above them the home and land owners to which she and Claude belonged. Above she and Claude were people with a lot of money and much bigger houses and much more land, but here the complexity of it would begin to bear in on her. For some of the people with a lot of money were common. And ought to be below where she and Claude and some of the people who had good blood, who had lost their money and had to rent. And then there were some colored people who owned their homes and land as well. There was a colored dentist in town. He had two red Lincolns and a swimming pool and a farm with registered white-faced cattle on it. And usually by the time she had fallen asleep, all the classes of people were moiling and roiling around in her head. And she would dream that they were all crammed together in a boxcar, being ridden off to be put in a gas oven. So, while the way that we characterize people today may not be so crude and backwards, all of us, I would say, have done what Ruby Turpin did, and we've done it in one way or another. Waiting for a job interview, we might size up the other candidates to try to figure out where we stand. Auditioning for a play, we might try to rank the other actors based on what we see before we have our turn in front of the director. On the first day of a class, we might try to figure out, okay, who is the smartest here in the room? The tendency to make these assumptions is human nature, and it was happening around Jesus. People were making assumptions. More specifically, they were making assumptions about who had sinned and how bad those sins must have been. We're not told about these situations in any other part of the Bible, but apparently there was a group of Galilean Jews who had been offering sacrifices in the Jerusalem temple, just as they were supposed to do. And in the midst of this devotional practice, they were slaughtered by some of Pilate's soldiers. And in the other situation mentioned by Jesus, a tower in the wall of Jerusalem had fallen on some completely unsuspecting bystanders. And in both of these cases, the assumption was that since this terrible thing had happened to these people, they must have done something to deserve it. They must have been sinners, and not just any sinners. These folks must have been doing something pretty bad. It was the same theological assumption that was made by Job's so-called friends. When those bad things kept happening to Job, one tragedy after another, each worse than the last, his friends began to think that old Job must have done something. He must have done something wrong to deserve this. And Eliphaz, the friend, may have said it best. Think now, Job, he said. Who That was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In other words, what was it, Job? We know you did something. We know you did something for you to be punished in this way. Job's friends believed that good things happened to good people and bad things happened to bad people. So they concluded that Job must be one of the bad people since so many bad things kept happening to him. I think we do that still. But human nature doesn't stop there. We do not just assume that other people are sinning. We also want to know how bad How bad they are, how badly they are sinning. And doesn't it make us feel better to assume that the sins of other people are really, really bad? Ranking the sins of others is just a backhanded way of ranking ourselves. As long as someone else's sin is worse than our own, maybe we'll be okay. As long as someone else can be Job, maybe we can avoid The fate of Job. Now, I will grant that there is biblical warrant for the idea that some sins are worse than others. For example, when Jesus um, stands before Pilate and Pilate condemns Jesus to death in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Pilate, That the one who handed handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Or let's put it this way I doubt that anyone would argue that someone who took a pack of post-it notes home from the office or a waiter who may not have reported all of his tips to the IRS has sinned to the same degree as those who ordered the murder of millions of Jews during World War II. All sins are not equal. Even so, Jesus does not seem interested in debating which sins are worse Or which sinners are worse than other sinners. In fact, Jesus flat out rejects the idea that those Galileans who were savagely murdered in the temple while they were praying and offering sacrifices were worse than anyone else. No, he says. They were not worse sinners. No, they did not deserve their fate any more than anyone else. They were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Still, the temptation to compare ourselves to others is strong, especially when that comparison helps us feel better about ourselves. When Jesus sensed that some people around him were doing just that, when they were trying to prop themselves up by comparing themselves to others, he told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So let's be honest here. How many of us have ever said something like this to ourselves at some point? Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a blank. And whatever noun we might insert is as varied as the people we are. So what would you or what have you put in that blank? Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a thief. Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not a Muslim. At least I'm not a homosexual. At least I'm not a Republican. At least I'm not a Democrat. Anybody that was snoozing off is now completely paying attention. <laughs> Welcome back. It's nice to have you. The truth is we compare ourselves to one another all the time. We categorize each other All the time, and we try to make ourselves feel better by ranking each other all the time. I hate to break it to you, but we are all Ruby Turpin. And as you might imagine, God doesn't really want that from us. Jesus clearly did not have much patience for us trying to build ourselves up by tearing others down. He suggests that we worry less about sizing up the sins of others and to concentrate more on our own. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, he says, but do not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me get that speck out of your eye when you... Yourself do not see the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, Jesus says. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And in Romans 3, Paul makes it clear that whenever we try to convince ourselves that we are more deserving of grace and favor than someone else, that we are fooling ourselves. All fall short. All have sinned. There is no one who is righteous, not even one, Paul says. So instead of spending our time and energy counting up the sins of others and weighing them against our own, God would rather us work to find and keep a truly repentant heart in our own chest. In that parable I mentioned a few minutes ago when that Pharisee was sitting there thanking God that he was better than everyone else, all those thieves and rogues and tax collectors. An actual tax collector was standing off to the side, away from everyone else, repenting. He wouldn't even raise his head to look to heaven, Jesus said, but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it was that man, the tax collector, Jesus said, who was the one that was smiled upon by God that day. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, I won't spoil for you the crucial moments of the story of Ruby Turpin, just in case any of you might want to go and read it for yourselves. You can find it pretty easily online. I did. But suffice it to say that Mrs. Turpin receives a very rude awakening in that waiting room. She is hit by a revelation that is so sudden, so vivid, and so painful that it radically alters Mrs. Turpin's dreams, O'Connor says. Flannery O'Connor concludes her story with these words. No more does she see classes of people being herded into cattle cars. Instead, she sees a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth. And on it, she sees vast hordes of souls rumbling upwards toward heaven. White trash. African-Americans in white robes, battalions of all kinds of freaks and lunatics, all the people that the world would dismiss as unwise and unworthy of time or attention, and every last one of them is shouting and leaping with joy. And at the end of the procession, bringing up the rear, were the people like her. And they all had looks of shock on their faces. As if they couldn't believe how things had turned out, as if the virtues that they had once held in such high esteem were being burned away. That, it seems, is what repentance is all about. It is not about trying to make ourselves feel better by comparing ourselves to all of those people that we think are the worst sinners. It is not about propping ourselves up by tearing someone else down. It is instead a recognition that we are all in this mess of sin together. That no one is righteous. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And those of us who humbly embrace this truth and who humbly embrace the grace that God gives in spite of this truth are the ones who, in Jesus' words, will go down justified. Those are the ones who will lead that great procession up into heaven, shouting and leaping for joy. For the rest of us, for those of us who are still preoccupied by whomever is being made out to be the demon or enemy this week, preoccupied with the splinter in other eyes when there are logs in our own, we are in for a shock. For we may find a good number of those people whom we have maligned and blamed and demonized will be ahead of us in line and that those grand assumptions that we have been making about sin and sinning are being turned on their heads and burned away in the purifying fire of God's revolutionary redemption. May God give us the vision and the will to humble ourselves in repentance. Amen.